Our text today is Job chapter 16. This is the first part of Job's answer to Eliphaz. Uh, And this would be Eliphaz's second speech, the second cycle of of disputations. Uh, If you are wondering, uh, as we go through, we will be uh, in the future skipping most of the uh, friends' speeches. We haven't as yet done so, but we will eventually. They uh, become, as oftentimes happens in a debate and, and a discussion where there are stubborn people on both sides, uh, it revolves to a just a constant repetition, which is good for you to read as you're reading through Job. You get the full effect of it, and, and it is important that, that we get that effect to understand the miseries of Job and how much he, his faith must persevere. But we will not be uh, going through all of the book of Job at the same speed that we have. Uh, However, that's not today. Today we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 16 in its entirety. Uh, We might uh, be looking a little bit of 16 next week as well as we look at 17, uh, because there's a part that come together. But for the most part, we're looking at 16 Uh, Before I read our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you now this morning in the name of Christ again, and we ask and beseech you that you would give us your Holy Spirit. Uh, Your Holy Spirit, by the prophets, inspired this work for the infallible instruction of your church, of your people. And we have been told by uh, by James that Uh, Particularly, we are to look to Job uh, as a model of persevering faith under trial and temptation. And we ask, as we look at Job's words today, that you would give us that same spirit. That the spirit would accompany not only the reading, but also the preaching of his word. That your word might shine forth and that Jesus Christ might be magnified and all things else fail. And we ask, dear Lord, that you would dwell in each heart that hears this word this morning, that your word might not return unto you void, but that it would accomplish what you desire, that our hearts would be taught, reproved and corrected and instructed in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work in our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might bear fruit. And so we ask that you would take that shallow soil apart from us, Uh, that you would take the hard soil of our hearts away, that you would uh, weed our hearts from the thorns and cares of the world, that you would till our hearts by your Spirit, that our hearts might produce the fruit of repentance and the fruit of faith in you and the fruit of obedience to your will. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from Job chapter 16, and the first verse through the 22nd. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things, miserable comforters are y'all. Uh, shall vain words have an end? Or what emboldeneth thee that thou answerest? I could also speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth. And the moving of my lips should assuage your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not assuaged. And though I forbear, I, what am I eased? 
but now he hath made me weary. And thou hast made desolate all my company. And thou hast filled me with wrinkles, which is a witness against me. And my leanness rising up in me beareth witness to my face. He teareth me in his wrath who hateth me. He gnasheth upon me with his teeth. My enemy sharpeneth his eyes upon me. They have gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smitten me upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. God have delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he hath broken me asunder. He hath also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up for his mark. His archers compass me about. Uh, He cleaveth my reins asunder and doth not spare. He poureth out my gall upon the ground. He breaketh me with breach upon breach. He runneth upon me like a giant. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and defiled my horn in the dust. My face is foul with weeping and on my eyelids is the shadow of death, not for any injustice in my hands. Also my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not thou my blood and let my cry have no place. Also now behold my witnesses in heaven and my record is on high. My friends scorn me, but my eye poureth out tears unto God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God, as a man pleadeth for his neighbor. When a few years are come, then I I shall go the way which I shall not return. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Here we have Job, as I mentioned, his response unto Eliphaz. And it is a response that acknowledges much of what Eliphaz had said. Uh, not his accusations against Job, but the fact that, that Job was afflicted by God. Job is always and has always confessed such. He sees his affliction coming from the hand of God himself. That God might afflict the innocent. In fact, this was Job's controversy with Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. They had come as friends, so to speak, to condole with him and comfort him. Uh, But they had been miserable comforters, as Job himself says in this verse 2. Because they had come with a uh, predetermined prejudicial accusation against him. They had seen his prosperity and had seen his ruin, and it was a ruin that was great, and no one could put it to the hands of the oppressor. It was not just with the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans coming upon him, but also the whirlwind and the fire from heaven, and then the boils upon his flesh. That these clearly came from the divine hand, and clearly God was afflicting him. And therefore they reasoned, that Job had been noted for his wisdom and for his piety and for his wealth, that he must have been a secret oppressor, and that he must have been an afflictor of the poor, and that his wealth was ill-gotten, and that God was finally bringing upon him the judgment that is to come upon all hypocrites. That was Eliphaz's doctrine. And Eliphaz will continue to press that doctrine. 
And, and Job pushes back with wisdom that is also very ancient and old, that the like thing happens to the good and to the wicked under the sun, that as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, that one cannot know the love or hatred of God by simply looking at what happens to mankind in this world, that there is more and deeper things going on, That yes, afflictions often serve as chastisement and punishment, even for God's people. But they don't just serve those purposes. That there are other reasons. Job does not know them. Job is grieved for them because all of his afflictions point rather to his guilt, which he knows he does not have. Job never says he is a sinless man. Job oftentimes in his responses confesses, that he is a sinner, and that he has sought reconciliation with God, that his standing with God is not one of justice, but one of grace. And he has been sincere in his piety and devotion to the Lord. And yet, clearly God may afflict the innocent. And clearly, Job acknowledges that God does indeed afflict him. In verses 6 through 8, after uh, chastising his friends about how they had treated him, and this is the, the, those early verses we'll pick back up when we look at chapter 17, and he picks up that, 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 that theme. But first, we, we want to look at the affliction and the, the greater part of 16 this week. He says, Though I speak, my grief is not assuaged. Though I forbear, I am not eased. But now he, and who this he may be, is, is clearly the Lord. Uh, I think your pew Bibles actually paraphrases and, and goes ahead and supplies the he there. Um, the, the problem in the pew Bible between verses 6 through 14 is that the, the grammar fluctuates in the Hebrew and is very rich. And all of that by the ESV is kind of flattened out. And in doing so, they, they put Job's uh, uh, argument in a little bit of an extreme which the Hebrew doesn't bear. Uh, but we will look at that in a bit. Uh, and, and, but ultimately, both uh, the translations acknowledge that Job is looking upon the Lord as his afflictor. Uh, he hath made me weary. He has made me des- he has made desolate all my company. These friends that came to comfort me, they've become part of my affliction. And thou hast filled me with wrinkles, which is a witness against me, and my leanness rising up in me beareth witness to my face. My situation, my grief, my weariness, my lack of peace, even in the midst of conflict, also points to a lack of peace with God. I mean, there is a certain sense in which sometimes we can pick up that that, uh, that nobility of soul and, and take up the cross with a certain equanimity and, and a nobility and, and be at peace in our afflictions. And, and certainly had Job's afflictions been less and had they been uh, not so much clearly direct coming from the Lord, if it had just been the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans by which he was afflicted, Job too might have borne these afflictions without great grief and anguish. When we speak of the patience of Job, we're not speaking of a virtue in Job that is likened to the Stoics or, or the heroic pagans of old, as virtuous as they may be, to suffer uh, uh, with a certain 
uh, apathy or a certain uh, broad view of time and, and kind of quell the, the passions of the heart. This was something more. This was geared to make Job turn against his God, as we know. And, and a certain moderation of expression was exactly what was not called for. And, and here we have seen Job giving vent, therefore, and, and that shows and testifies that he is not uh, at least uh, on good terms, as we say outwardly anyway, with the Lord. And, and this he acknowledges. Uh, his ruin is complete, and yet it gets worse. This is, this is the, the, he is a soldier fallen in battle, and his enemy is still stabbing him after he's died a long time, is the image that we get in verses 12 through 14, or as if you use a sports score, uh, this is a, a junior varsity team, and the professional team has run up the score three or four or five or six times what it ought to be. I was at ease, but he had broken me asunder. He had taken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up as his mark. His archers have come past me about. He cleaveth my reins in sunder, and he does not spare. He's splitting him open, and he poureth out his gall on the ground. He breaketh me with breach upon breach, and he runneth me upon me like a giant. It is a complete and utter ruin. We should fall and contemplate this about how much the people of God, how much God will allow his saints to suffer and even suffer at his own hand. If the Lord is determined against us, where is our peace and where is our relief? This, by the way, would be the opposite of Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? But we ought to remember the flip side of that statement. If God is against us, who can relieve us? Who can be our hope? And this is what Job is feeling in his heart. Job is recognizing that his afflictions come from the only one that could help him. And we need to understand that this isn't just an Old Testament problem. That this isn't a problem from of old. This is something that is part of the warp and the woof of the gospel. When Jesus calls his disciples, when he's teaching them what to expect, he says, he that will not deny himself and take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus tells his disciples, the world will hate you because it hated me. And the servant is not greater than his master. And if they are going to crucify the master, they will crucify you or seek to do so. When Christ says that you have a cross to bear, he's not speaking of that ornamental, uh, beautiful symbol that we now think of right behind my head. That we have transformed what in the ancient world was the symbol of shame and degradation and destruction into something of our great hope. I mean, he is speaking that way. But we ought not to remember its original significance. 
And that we ought to understand that there will be trials for us as we follow Jesus Christ. The prosperity gospel that says if you only believe hard enough, then you will not suffer. If you only believe hard enough, you will prosper. If you are suffering now and if you are in grief, it's because your faith is weak. No, no, no. That contradicts what Jesus Christ himself says. And it contradicts the experience of God's people. It contradicts the testimony of the Holy Spirit himself in all ages of the church. Somebody says that you don't prosper and you don't uh, have joy because you're not believing hard enough. Comfort yourself that you have the faith of Job that is commended in Scripture. Comfort yourself that maybe now you are actually uh, enjoying that blessedness that Jesus himself says was to the prophets. Blessed are you when people say all manner of things falsely against you for my sake. For so they persecuted the prophets. That you are in good company. But also... When we think of the crosses, we think of the trials. We think of our prayer request list that is, that is filled with, with important and, and sometimes to the people suffering them significant and all-encompassing problems. But understand, it can get worse. Now, it's not that God brings everybody on Job's path. It's not that he afflicts everybody with the cross that he gave his Savior. Not every disciple was crucified. Not every disciple went to his death as far as we know. But understand that your faith in God means that you will trust him even when it appears that he is completely set against you as an enemy. And understand that sometimes your faith is contrary to senses. In fact, that's part of what makes faith faith. That we're trusting God despite the appearances. It's easy to trust when our experience of reality uh, con- conforms to, uh, to our expectation. It's easy to trust somebody with your money who has a good track record with it, right? It's easy to trust somebody uh, that it's, uh, you know, the ancient um, uh, Ottoman sultans of old entrusted their harems of eyes with the eunuchs because it was easy. They had no significant evidence that they would be uh, or could be even uh, uh, lecherous upon their wives. But sometimes, you know, we, we don't have God in our pocket ever. Uh, we, we trust a God who has great power in him. And very often he, for his own ends that are glorious and merciful, even unto Job, will bring us through a great deal of strife. And so we need to consider what that cost of discipleship could in fact be. And therefore, practically speaking, we ought to be thankful, even in the midst of our sufferings, that they're not worse. Because for most of us, as far as I know each of you, most of us, they could get worse than they did for Job. They could get worse from where they are now. Now, one, when we're afflicted with this, sometimes the answer is, yes, God does afflict, but he doesn't afflict us directly. 
that, that God is not doing this. After all, if we knew what Job knew, we would know that the devil is the one doing this. And we would know that God has uh, kind of backed away. But God is not at the devil's beck and call. God is not subject to the devil's whim. Job is thinking like this true because it's no consolation that God afflicts by permission and not directly. I mean, Job recognizes this. He may not see the hand of the devil, but he does see that God's hand in, against him is indirect. In verse 9, he uses the word he, but here it most likely refers not to God. He teareth me in his wrath who hateth me. He gnasheth upon me with his teeth. My enemy sharpeneth his eyes upon me. And then he goes into the plural. They gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smitten me upon their cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. And the conclusion is God have delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hand of the wicked. It didn't help that God wasn't doing this directly. That all these things he says about God tearing in breach from breach. Uh, was God doing this by permission or indirectly? It actually aggravated the affliction. I mean, this means that God had handed him over to somebody that did not have God's mercy. Remember when David uh, sent the census out and numbered Israel contrary to the law of God. And he repented and the prophet came to him with a choice from God to uh, fall into uh, plague, to fall into the hands of his enemies, or to fall into the hand of the Lord. And David in 2 Samuel 24, 14 said, Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for he is merciful. In Psalm 109, verse 6 when David is imprecating his enemy and he wants to heap up the judgment and destruction upon the enemy that is the enemy of God's people, he says, put him in the hands of the wicked. Let the hands of the wicked rule over him and the devil too, verse 10. It is an aggravation that God is handing off your... your, your, your providence to somebody else that does not have His mercy. It is, it is not a relief and it doesn't excuse God's power there. It doesn't excuse His enmity. It actually aggravates it. And which is why Job is returning back unto the Lord in verse 20. My friends scorn me, but my eyes pour out tears unto God. This is, by the way, exactly the nature of the patient faith. He can see He could see that his ultimate issue comes from the hand of God, and yet he trusts God. It is God who will be his Savior. He's not going to go hunting to find some relief from something less. He's not going to find relief from the enemy. He's not going to go to the devil. He's not going to go to despair. He's not going to go to death. He's going to go to the one that afflicts him. Now, We wonder if this is something unique in faith, but it's not. Imagine, put yourself, adults, back to when you were a child and you were worn out uh, because of something you did. And whose hugs did you need and want most at that moment? After you got the switch or the board and the beating, who was it that also comforted you and wiped away your tears? Was it not the same one that that hit you? And therefore you knew it wasn't of, of vengeance or wrath, but of love and discipline. 
That is faith. That is faith that looks upon even the, the bad things that happen to you, as because, even though you don't understand them, they're ultimately for your good. And that you persevere until you find out what that good is. So Job concedes to Eliphaz that he does suffer. He suffers even as an unrighteous man. Yet he does not concede that he suffers because he is wicked and because he is unrighteous. Look at verse 15 through 16, 17. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin. This is not the, 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 the behavior of a proud and arrogant sinner. And defiled my horn in the dust. My face is foul with weeping, and my eyelids is the shadow of death. I've taken my glory, I've ruined it, probably is sitting in the ashes and throwing the ash upon his head. Glory generally uh, has to do with the head. Horn can be that or sometimes other things. Uh, Not for any injustice in my hands have I done this. My prayer is pure. I've done this because I know that this is my only hope. I've done this uh, because I am pious. I am uh, right with God. I am His faithful servant. Eliphaz had accused him of casting off fear in chapter 15, verse 4, and restraining prayer before God and basically tempting others to do the same. And verse 25, he stretched out his hand against God, strengthened himself against the Almighty. He run upon him, even upon his neck, upon the thick bosses of his bucklers, because he covered his fate with fatness and his gullops of fat on his flanks. He was so proud of his uh, prosperity that he rushed headlong against the soldier of God. That wasn't his say. He put himself in sackcloth and ashes. All that he desires is a vindication of his innocence before he dies. O earth, cover not thou my blood, and let my cry have no place. The covering not the blood. If he had spilled the blood of others unrighteously as Cain spilled Abel's, he wants it to scream up to heaven for justice to testify against him, but he knows there is no one to testify against him. Or rather that his own blood that is being falsely accused when it lies in the ground would nevertheless pursue that quest for justice and vindication from the Lord. So that his name would not die in ignominy, but will nevertheless live forward as a righteous man. And don't let my cry uh, shrink back and lose place. But he knows. He knows Uh, The Lord knows that he's innocent. My witness is in heaven, and my record is on high. My friends scorn me, but I pour out my tears unto God. What he needs, what he needs is a mediator to level that playing field. What he needs, because he agrees with Eliphaz in this as well, that God is infinitely higher than he is. That man cannot justify himself before the Lord. That even the angelic hosts are not pure in the sights of God. That he doesn't trust his angels with their own righteousness. That he, by his grace, upholds all the universe. And how can he plead his case before such a judge as that? So he needs a mediator, one that will bring the Lord down to him that he could discuss with him as one, a neighbor. Or rather that he could lift him up to God so that he would be a neighbor to him. One that would stand in his place. And this also is one of the old wishes and desires of, of Job. We see it in chapter 9, 32. For he is not a man as I am that I should answer him. And we should come together in judgment. 
Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not fear terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. What he needs is a mediator. What he needs is somebody to stand there. And now, this suffering, though, is bringing that to the fore. We get no indication that Job thought in this way before he suffered. And even in his argument with his friends, it's been sort of a slow sort of grasping of this. We will see as he answers Bildad in chapter 19 that it rises to the climax. I know that my Redeemer, my Mediator liveth, and that in my flesh I will be vindicated and I will see Him. He's not quite there yet, but he recognizes his need for that. He has so much of the Gospel here. And this is a man that is experiencing these things, whether or not it was written at this time or much later. Uh, He was experiencing these things roughly the time that Israel was in Egypt, uh, when when the, the surer testimonies of God were not recorded. And the suffering was the way that the faith was being made evident to him. And there's one of the good things that Job is benefiting. He is learning about God. He's learning about himself. His faith, therefore, is not just abstract. It becomes more and more particular and more and more concrete as he knows the one to whom he trusts. But we are not Job. And we come at a different point. And we can read these words and rejoice. Because even though we see the harshness of God, even to His own saints, and recognize that we might be called to bear just this cross, we will go into it knowing we have just such a mediator as is required in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4, not what we read this morning, but consider also what we read this morning. In chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. In other words, making breach upon breach and of the joints and marrow, pouring out the reins and the gall upon the ground. And he's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And seeing then that we have such a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we are not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus, he is that holy one that suffered as a sinner who knew no sin. If you consider all the problems and the pains and the miseries of Job, who nevertheless confessed himself to be a sinner, then consider also the pains and the miseries of our Savior who by his own people were counted to blasphemer, who was crucified and hung on the cross for violating the law of God and is a rebel against the Roman state. And even there upon the cross hung, Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
that what gave him great grief was not what the Jews would do to him, not what the Roman Empire would do to him, but the cup of woe that his father had for him. And nevertheless, he went faithfully to bear it. So that he bore even his father's judgment against sin. But he did so so that you and I might have that daysman between God and man. As Paul calls him the mediator between God and man, the Son of God. Or as he mentions to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that you and I might partake of the righteousness of Christ. If Job could go to God, even as he perceived him as his enemy, with no promise, and with no great hope except the own integrity of his conscience, that even when God struck him down and he saw that it was God striking him down, he nevertheless put his hope in God himself, clung to him and persevered, then you and I can do so in the peace of Jesus Christ, knowing that we are in peace with him, that we are reconciled, knowing fuller and greater the behind the scenes that Job never knew. So it's an argument. It's an argument for uh, the, the greater to the less. It's an argument for you and I to persevere, knowing that we would have not just the Word given to us, but the Holy Spirit who holds us there and gives us that grace. When you're going through suffering, It is better to know that the one who afflicts you is that sovereign God who is merciful than it is to ascribe it to any other thing. There will be those that say, oh, something awful happens, Katrina comes through, it is the hand of God. Uh, Don't say that. Well, no, do say that. I mean, it's hard to say that. It's hard to think that. But ultimately, it is your great hope that the one who afflicts you, the one who brings you low, is also the one that will wrap you up and be merciful to you. And he is not calling you to where he has not himself gone before. He's tempted like as we are in all things, so that he can succor those who have been tempted. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ Jesus. And we thank you that in him we know not only affliction of the cross, but the great ends and the reconciliation and the glory that is to be had there. We know also the resurrection. And we know also what makes for our peace. We ask that you would give us your spirit. That we might, he might point us unto Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And that we might persevere against all temptation to do otherwise. And that we might come to know that glory in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.